0: hello and welcome everybody to according to andrew number 110 aristotle's rhetoric the forgotten art uh i just finished reading uh this book and it was absolutely fantastic um i had watched vox's uh little review of that um which i highly recommend i will link it down in the description um because that is a great summary of uh, this book and, and some of the key points and we'll get into some of that um But I just wanted to kind of share my thoughts on it and stuff like that. Uh, To start out, uh, I found it a fairly easy read, which kind of surprised me because, you know, it's a philosophical book. And some of the early stuff, uh, you know, I was kind of getting lost and and things like that. But as things progressed, um, I kind of got used to his writing style and stuff like that. It was was a pretty easy read. Um, Obviously, this is translated, so I will give you the translation that I read. Um, It was, if I can find the correct page here. Uh, the text of Rhetoric is from the 1924 translation by W. Uh, Rise Roberts. So, that is who... That's the version I got. If you want to get the specific one, uh, the actual version I have is from uh, Castellia Library. And it is absolutely beautiful. Um, but, unfortunately, you can't get this one anymore. <clears throat> so... Um, You might be able to get, like, a future reprint version of it, but uh, if there's anybody that's interested in books and stuff like that, I definitely highly recommend Castellio Library. Go check them out at, uh, I think it's archaven.com is where you can find their stuff. Uh, Let's see if this pops up. Oh, that's the wrong thing. Uh, Archaven Comics. Let's try that. Yes, it's Arcaven Comics, so if you go to Arcaven Comics, and then go into their book section, and then uh, go to subscription, oh, not that one. It's somewhere in here, Leather Books. Go to Leather Books, go to Bindery. Boom. You'll be able to get uh, the subscription for that somewhere in there. You guys can figure it out, but I give you the general direction. All right, now let's actually get into the, (laughs) the book. Um... So, uh book is really interesting. One of the key things to take away from it is the idea of rhetoric. So, rhetoric is, um, there's two different uh, ways of speaking. So, th- through persuasion, there's dialectic and there's rhetoric. Re- um, dialectic is when you're trying to use facts and reasons, stuff like that. It's what we associate a lot with science. Of, uh, here's my experiment, here's my hypothesis, this is what we're going to kind of do uh, to get there. And then... Um, the other side of that is rhetoric. It's persuasion. It's it's trying to convince someone, hey, we should do this or that or whatever, and uh, you know, using various flares. Uh, Owen Benjamin is uh, really good at this, as if for an example. Um, also, Donald Trump is uh, famously good at um, this with his rhetorical flares and stuff like that. And it also puts so much stuff into context because you're like, you know, some people get like all up in arms. Um, you can kind of see this a lot with. Uh, the the mainstream news stuff where they, they're they always like, um, oh, Donald Trump is lying and stuff like that, when really, what are you saying? In a sense, they're correct when they say that, but uh, you know, what are you saying was hyperbole or exaggeration and stuff like that. as a And that's like a means of persuasion. And if you take that lens and apply it to uh, the political sphere and a lot of other aspects of life, but I found it incredibly useful in the political sphere, uh, you end up a lot less frustrated with politics in general because you understand that it's just a, a rhetorical offer or just a rhetorical um, way to kind of flare stuff, and it's it's really not as big of a deal as it initially seems. If you take, uh, you know, what they, like, they, they don't actually believe what they're saying. They're just trying to convince you of something. Um, <clears throat> now, there's a limit to that, and uh, as <clears throat> he says, uh, rhetoric always to the truth, but let's get into that. Um, so one of the, opening um, things that he talks about, he goes through the f- uh, four points of rhetoric, or maybe it's five. Nope, four points. Um, <clears throat> so I'm just going to read those because uh, I think they do a good job of highlighting uh, where it is useful. Uh, so it says, uh, it has now been shown that ordinary writers on rhetoric treat uh, of non-essentials. It has been shown why they have inclined more towards the forensic branch of oratory. Uh, I guess I wouldn't read that. Didn't really that. Uh, rhetoric is useful because things that are true and Things that are just have a natural tendency to prevail over the opposite. So that if the decision of judges are not what they ought to be, the uh, defeat must be due to the speakers themselves, and they must be blamed accordingly. Uh, before some, oh, I guess on that point, uh, that's kind of uh, Robert Barnes has this great quote <laughs> uh, when he's talking about um, how to when you're when you're a lawyer uh, working for a client, uh, he's like if you have if you have the facts, you pound the facts. If you uh, have the narrative, you pound the narrative. And if you have nothing, you pound the table. Um, That's a good um, way of uh, thinking about uh, rhetoric like shorthand. Um, And that's that's kind of addressing this, where uh, people can use their rhetorical flair to get judges to make decisions that aren't in alignment with truth and justice. Uh, Before some audiences, this is the most important one. Number two, before... Uh, Some audiences, not even the possession of the exactest knowledge, will make it easy uh, for what we say to produce conviction. For arguments based on knowledge implies instruction, and then there are people whom one cannot instruct. Here, then, we must use, as our model of persuasion and argument, uh, notations possessed by everybody, as was observed in the topics while dealing with the ways to handle a popular audience. And... This goes into the fact that not everybody is convinced by facts and reasons and stuff like that. A lot of people are convinced simply by uh, rhetoric, by persuasion, by... um, I mean, if you look at uh, what's happened over the last couple of years, how many people just kind of went along to get along kind of thing. And you could show them as many facts and stuff like that about uh, mass or um, jabba jabba ding dongs all that kind of stuff, and it wouldn't convince them of anything because they're... Uh, limited to the rhetoric and i i think it's kind of a spectrum uh sometimes you're in some aspects you're limited to the rhetoric some aspects you're not but it's it's an aspect that you have to be able to flow between and some people uh can kind of progress into but there are some people that are just gonna that's that's how they operate that's what they're into um and so it's it's a really um way of understanding this uh good way of understanding this number three uh, we must be able to employ persuasion, just as strict reasoning can be employed, on opposite sides of the question, not in order that we may make uh, may in practice employ it in both ways. For we must not make people believe what is wrong, but in order that we may see clearly what the facts are, and that if another man argues unfairly, uh, we, on our part, may be able to confute him." No. Uh, this is really important because if you try to argue... If someone's using rhetoric and you're trying to use dialectic, the rhetorical speaker will win. We'll get into that later. Uh, no uh, no other of the arts draws opposite conclusions. Dialectic and rhetoric alone do this. Both these arts draw opposite conclusions impartially. No, none. Nevertheless, the underlying facts do not lend themselves equally well to the contrary of view. No, things that are true and things that are better are, by their nature practically always easier to prove and easier to believe in. And uh, this gets to the heart of uh, what Vox says a lot of times, is uh, the best rhetoric points to the truth. And so that's why some rhetorical flares just fall flat on their face, and some rhetorical flares uh, seem to have such a bite to them, right? That's why, uh, you know, they they were calling um, Trump fake news, and he, he did a twist on them, and he's like, no, you're fake news. And that had a, um, it was a, uh, it, the, the label fit the character on the media far better than it fit him, and therefore it was able to be flipped in such a uh, jujitsu-ish way that it wasn't possible in the reverse. Uh, it is absurd to hold that a man ought to be ashamed of being unable to defend himself with his limbs. Oh, th- sorry, uh, point number four uh, on Aristotle's rhetoric uh, and why it's useful It is absurd to hold that a man ought to be ashamed of being unable to defend himself with his limbs, but not ashamed of being unable to defend himself with speech and reason, when the use of rational speech is more distinctive of a human being than the use of his limbs. And if it be objective, then one uses such power of speech unjustly might do great harm. That is a charge which may be made in common against all good things except virtue, and a Above all, against the things that are most useful, the strength, health, wealth, generalship, a man can confer the greatest benefits by right use of these and inflict the greatest of injuries by using them wrongly. Uh, Basically, he's just saying uh, you have to be able to defend yourself in the realm of uh, rhetoric and persuasion. And uh, to defend yourself is is, uh, not an evil thing, and to know how to use it isn't an evil thing. It's sometimes the only way. It's... Uh, the great way that Vox describes it in the intro of this um, book is: it makes uh, no sense to try to talk English to a German speaker or uh, Liberian to a French speaker, right? You just have to—you uh, have to speak the language in which people understand. And so it, there's there should be no shame in um, in using rhetoric in this manner. On top of that, uh. He makes a distinction that you can't... <clears throat> and this is an issue that we face a lot in... Oh, well, someone might use it for evil. Well, that's true of basically everything. So either you're going to outlaw literally everything, which isn't... Which, if you've outlawed everything, you've outlawed nothing. Because it's unenforceable then. And then it's... Uh, the actual decisions are just capricious. Which is kind of what we see right now. It's uh, We've had an over-regulation of stuff, but that's a side note. <clears throat> but... These are kind of some of the core things that really show why rhetoric is such an important book and why I definitely recommend it. It's only 250 pages. It, it, it When I was reading it, I flew through it. It it's not very hard to read. Um, so I definitely recommend uh, this as uh, reading. And um, if you have a kid or something like that, and you know they're they're uh, you're trying to figure out maybe recommended reading books for. Uh, your kid as they grow up and stuff like that uh, I think Rhetoric should be on your list it is a very important book to understanding and developing and uh, the sooner that people understand these kind of uh, aspects and we all understand it on a certain instinctual level but uh, truly a deep understanding of it and being able to use it uh, can really help especially those that are stuck in the uh, dialectic so much which is a lot of uh, which is an issue that a lot of Um, intelligent people run into where they can see patterns that other people can't and because they can see patterns that other people can't, um, they... Trying to explain the pattern that the other person can't ever possibly see isn't useful. And so they have to uh, turn to things which they can't understand in persuasion. Um, Like a a good example the other day, um, and this... I don't know if this necessarily falls under uh, persuasion, but I think it does. Is uh, I was talking, I was I was on an interview, and they were talking about something that was uh, 300 thou. Now most people, that's it's like okay, well, what's 300 thou and stuff like that. And that's that's kind of uh, when intelligent people are talking about these various models and stuff like that. That's the kind of thing that to them, 300 thou, it's a thing that exists and it makes sense and it exists and. That's what it is. But, like, there's no frame of reference for someone who doesn't understand that model on the deep level that maybe the more intelligent person does or just the person that developed the model does. But here's a really easy visual um, to get the point across. Uh, it's the thickness of a paperclip, a, a small paperclip. Boom. Instantly, uh, message is conveyed in a very clear manner. And uh, you don't have to, like, abstract out all these things. And that's one of the issues with dialectic is it causes, it requires a certain amount of abstraction where... Rhetoric is specifically, doesn't if there's levels of abstraction, rhetoric does not work. And so, um, obviously, you can always just go out and test your rhetoric by talking to people, see if you can convince them and stuff like that. Um, but another uh, easy way to kind of gut check yourself on your rhetoric is, does it require a level of abstraction to understand? If it does, it will not work. <clears throat> um, unless that level of abstraction is generally known throughout the entire society. Um, I can't think of an example right now, but it's in general, I would say that, uh, something that you can't, uh, can't really use. So getting into, um, some of the other stuff, uh, early on, he talks about, uh, the distinction basically between the judiciary and the legislature. Uh, there's a lot of different little aspects he touches on throughout the book, Uh, And he says, uh, leave as few decisions to the judges as possible, for they may make their decisions within short notice, where those of the legislators can make their laws after long consideration. And the idea here is uh, long-form debate is less, um, and long consideration is less uh, influenced by rhetorical flares than someone who has to make a decision over a short period of time. Also, the merits of the ideas can be debated by the whole cohort of the legislator while a single judge renders the judicial decision after being presented evidence with two opposing combatants. And this is basically uh, you're relying on a single the The point of failure is smaller. I kind of go back and forth on this because we've seen throughout like more people making a decision isn't necessarily a good thing but um, sometimes you want a committee to decide something and sometimes you don't. Uh, I There's a great uh, quote or whatever, which is uh, a camel is what happens when you, uh, when a committee, uh, when a committee designs a horse, which is kind of funny, but you know, a camel for it does have very good purposes in certain uh, regards, so that's kind of uh, one of those things where you need a balance of, of those different aspects. He also <clears throat> goes on to describe uh, the different political forms. Which is kind of interesting, and this isn't necessarily uh, a rhetorical uh, consideration, but I find it very interesting for kind of my own reflection and uh, something to maybe consider for yourself. So uh, he says there's four types of government, democracy, oligarchy, uh, aristocracy, and monarchy. And he splits monarchy into two uh, forms. He splits it into kingship and tyranny. Uh, And these four governments have... Uh, four end goals that they will work towards in in hopes of realization. Uh, The end goal of democracy is freedom, of oligarchy is wealth, of aristocracy is the maintenance and education of the national institutions, and of tyranny is the protection of the tyrant. And uh, I just find that interesting because, um, you know, we always claim that we live in a democracy and stuff like that, but as we can see how things have played out, uh, we don't really, but um, I find it interesting because of uh, my own If you've watched several videos on my channel, uh, trying to kind of understand my own uh, political beliefs and political structures that I would like to kind of see in the future. And it seems, kind of going through this, that I would fall under aristocracy. He describes aristocracy as... uh, So, democracy is a form of government in which citizens describe... Uh, distribute the offices of state among themselves by lot uh, whereas oligarchy there is a property qualification so um, interestingly enough America technically under um, Aristotle's definition would was an oligarchy because you had to be a landowner to vote when it first started um, and then it was in a, it either then it shifted to an aristocracy he defines aristocracy as uh, under aristocracy, uh, one of education. By education, I mean the education which is laid down by law for it is those who have been loyal to the national institutes that hold office under an aristocracy. So basically, as the oligarchical property qualification kind of faded away, they substitute with an aristocratic uh, institutions and stuff like that. And that's um, one of the reasons that our government is so locked down and stuff like, or not locked down, but... Um, controlled in certain ways be, uh, by these various institutions uh, they the less like long march through institutions is because this uh, was a smart move because of this air aristarch- aristocratical shift um, in how we set up our society that happened um, I'd say the definite it was a slow process but uh, the Civil War was definitely a major uh, shift in this. Um, and then uh, he describes monarchy as the word implies is the construction in which one man has authority over all and he splits it into two forms kingship which is limited by prescribed conditions and tyranny which is not limited to anything Uh, so that covers that and then what else did he talk about um Oh, just uh, one interesting thing that he points out is uh, no one grows angry with a person on whom there is no prospect of taking revenge. And so um, I think that's some a good thing to kind of watch in yourself is uh, if you stare into the abyss too long, the abyss stares back and stuff like that. And um, that idea of uh, revenge and stuff like that can and, uh, you know, a lot of times various politics or, or things really outside of our control uh, can make our blood boil. And that's where I've uh, Marcus Aurelius' book, which I definitely recommend, um, has kind of helped, the stoic uh, has kind of helped me, like, look, if I can't control it, I'm not going to worry about it kind of thing. Um, there's obviously, you all always kind of slip back into uh, wanting to control things outside of your control, but at least having that um, framework in your mind and being able to kind of catch yourself on those things is definitely useful, I have found. Um, but if you have no prospect of, if, if you are thinking about taking revenge on various things, um, in a sense, you're you're taking the first steps towards realizing that. And so maybe it's it's good to take a second and step back from the precipice and be like, why am I, um, why is this, uh, flaring up my emotions? Why is this getting me so heated? <clears throat> um, then uh, part 15. Of book one, he kind of goes through how to rhetorically maneuver and stuff like that. I'm not going to go read through all that, but that's a a key point or part to kind of look out for uh, or or particularly pay attention to, I believe. Um, Then in book two, um, uh, part 12 to 15, he goes through uh, the strengths and weaknesses of a young man versus an old man and where they kind of uh, uh, peak. And what was interesting is that he set the prime between 30 and 35 for men. Um, and I, I don't even think he talk, talked about women. Um, and it, it's interesting because there's a lot of people recently that have been um, talking about how 30 to 35 is the prime. And if you look throughout history, it definitely seems to be the case. Um, apparently Rush Limbaugh uh, one time said, uh, nobody takes you seriously till you're 30 or something like that. Um, and if you're someone like me, like... Uh, I used Alexander the Great as like kind of someone to look up to in my model and stuff like that. and uh, that's just setting yourself up for failure. <laughs> Don't do that. because <laughs> um, like you know I'm like eight like I'm j- I just got the right to vote and I'm like, let's go conquer the world. And then like you know you, you hit uh, 30 and you're like, I haven't conquered the world. I'm a flipping failure. Luckily, what makes me feel better is uh, Caesar did the same thing he was 30. He hadn't really accomplished much in his life. He thought he was going to be a complete failure. Um, and, uh, you know, obviously he's still in the history books and considered one of the greatest generals of all time. So uh, there's still time. I'm not saying be lazy, don't put in the work and stuff like that, but you, you got to put in the reps in your 20s and nothing's really going to start paying off until you hit in your 30s and stuff like that. That's just something for uh, if there's any younger guys listening and stuff like that. Uh, keep that in mind. You see that with um, so Caesar didn't get his break till later. Sulla didn't get his break till he's 50. Um, Metternich didn't get his break till he was in his 30s. Um, uh, Otto von Bismarck didn't get his break till he was in his 30s. Like li- it's literally like bang, bang, bang. Everyone is in their 30s. It is kind of crazy. Like it's like uh, th- there's that meme where like dude's digging and like one more dig and you would have hit hit um, uh, diamonds and stuff like that and that's kind of like what it seems like I haven't quite hit that I just I just turned 30 this year um I haven't hit that ascendancy and stuff like that yet but um that's something to keep in mind put in the work in your 20s set yourself up but like understand that it's it's not really going to pay off until your 30s um and I think one of the things that can kind of set people up for failure is they think that the success is going to come quickly and stuff like that and But having that perspective of understanding when uh, when things are actually going to pay off, when you're going to see the return and stuff like that, um, it can be discouraging for some people because it seems so far in the future, which I get. Like I'm, I'm, you know, I'm 30, went through all my 20s, I'm having a hard time visualizing out the 40. Um, but having that understanding, I think will set themselves up better. Uh, you know, put in the work in your 20s and in your 30s, it'll pay off. Um. And I got kind of lucky where right, I just kind of accidentally did this because I started following Vox and stuff like that and started doing a lot of reading and stuff and, and things that just kind of interested me. And now because I started doing a lot of uh, reading and stuff like that when I was like my, uh, I think like 26 to 30, there's a whole litany. I, I'm, I feel much better educated, much uh, more well read and all that stuff. And I still have a lot of work to go, but uh, putting in the time over all those years and just chipping away and understanding, uh, look, you can't read everything today. Uh, but you can read something, and so just chip away at it, and over time it'll build up. Um, and that's that's a good mentality to have for all sorts of things. Uh, this is kind of a weird tangent in the middle of this, um, but it's it's interesting uh, to consider. Uh, then he later on in the book, Aristotle gets into uh, writing styles and how to write stuff. He talks about prose and the two different uh, kinds where... Um, you can have short and curt um, writing styles where everything is kind of uh, explained in, within the, the sentence. And then there's, like, the free-running style. I am, if you've seen my, well, I guess I don't put a lot of writing on the Internet, but my writing is notoriously long-winded. <laughs> um, I remember uh, when I was writing my thesis, like, there was uh, something that when I was doing the review for my uh from a master's degree like the, the reviewer guy was like usually people have the issue of having too short of sentences and you have the opposite problem where your sentences are too long. <laughs> um, so that's kind of interesting. Um, but yeah, the other one is uh, free running sentences which naturally flow uh, so that there is no natural stopping places which is the issue I run into all the time is I feel like I need to put a stopping place somewhere because it's getting too dang long um, but there's nowhere to naturally break it. Uh, being that it's, it seems to uh or the uh and then yeah I thought this just kind of stuck out to me cuz it really applied to me personally. Uh and then one of the last things that he talks about is how to and we kind of touched on this earlier is was um Donald Trump's way he jests and stuff like that and how things work and how to uh beat rhetorical flares. So um he says, "Kill your opponent's jesting with earnestness, and earnestness with jesting." So, um, the corporate media takes themselves extremely seriously. So, if you don't take them seriously, then it's a way to undermine them. Uh, someone that. Um, so, one of these things is don't be afraid of like the labels they throw at you, right? So a lot. Uh, so a lot of times they'll, the, you know, they're like, "You're a racist, you're a Nazi, or whatever," and. Uh, you know, this causes you to be on the defensive. And, oh, no, I'm not this, blah, blah, blah. And it's like, they they set the framework by doing that. And so one of the ways that you can kind of um, break that framework is just by being like, no. So uh, a great example is uh, when I was in my fraternity, we had this joke uh, house position called the house pussy, uh, which is basically whoever was the biggest bitch in the house. (laughs) Um, And uh, we had a guy that was going to Graduate, and so we needed that. Who was the house pussy, and so we needed a new um, house pussy. And someone like was like, "Oh, well, you know what?" Uh, they they tried to throw it at me, and I was just like, "No," and like that just killed it dead right there, right? And uh, that was a way to um, to uh, put earnestness against their jesting, because you know, they're kind of joking and, you know, I could have played it off playfully, but I was just like, nah. And it's like, well, obviously, uh, it just falls flat because rhetoric has to point to the truth. And because I was willing to stand up for myself, uh, the, uh, the label didn't stick and that, that's a good example of kind of, uh, how these things work. Uh, Trump did this very well as, uh, It was as if it was true. Uh, Hold up. I missed the sentence. So, Trump was really good at this um, with the fake news example, like I talked about, where they tried to apply it to him, and then he's like, nah, it's it's you guys, actually. You're projecting. And because it was true, it stuck. Uh, Another good example of this is SJW uh, is very effective uh, as they cannot, with earnestness, assert uh, the title which you gave them so because you're calling them a warrior they can't be like yeah i am what what about it right because they're they're obviously not that right so that's using jesting to undermine uh because they're they're they treat themselves as serious people and then you're like oh well you're a warrior but they can't honestly say that they're actually a warrior and so it like undermines their uh credibility or under undermines their um way of being able to stand up for themselves uh And that's why it's really, like, um, Trump's thing with nationalism was really important, right? Is, you know, people used that as a deriding thing before Trump took office. And all of a sudden, uh, Trump was like, no, I am a nationalist. Like, why would I not be interested in in the national interest? And um, because he, uh, they were trying to use that as a deriding thing. And it's kind of uh, the idea behind, like, the N-word type thing. Uh, but it never on that one. I don't feel like it actually worked, and that the there's no real coherent idea uh, plan with that one in a rhetorical sense. Uh, but the nationalism was very powerful because he's like, yeah, I am. Like, what about it? And um, you know he's earnest, but then he also made it like nonchalant, and that just like nose dive. That you're like, oh crap, like we gotta work things out. And I think this a similar thing is kind of coming for racism. People are like, you're racist. And people will be like, yeah, so. And, and that's when, like, because you've seen um, kind of left-wing politics and stuff like that freaking out. But um, it's trying to suppress this, this potential inevitability. I think it's an inevitability where uh, someone, you know, says you're racist and they go, yeah, what's your point? Um, and that's happening in little corners and pockets and stuff like that. But it hasn't permeated the culture and once it permeates the culture, then it, the probability of something really bad happen, or not bad, but um, a change in, um, in the ruling parties uh, is highly likely. Uh, and so as a last little thing uh, for a rhetoric that I wanted to kind of give an example of, I listened to Part of the Problem quite a bit, which is a libertarian podcast. And so um, one effective uh, rhetoric... This does get into some abstraction, but I think it's well known enough that it would work, <clears throat> uh, is a lot of times they say, well, here, we're the third option or whatever. And I think it would be more powerful personally to say uh, it's about time to give America a second option, right? Because the Democrats and the Republicans are two wings of the same bird, right? They're... They are the same thing. And so to give someone a different option, you you have to go third party. Well, don't make yourself third party. Lump them all in together. Look, look, they're in this camp. It doesn't matter if you vote for Republican or Democrat. You're voting for the same thing. Vote for me. I'm the third option. While Trump's around, I don't think this is going to work. But um, I think it is a potential option for libertarians. And it's it's something to kind of consider. Um, and if you set up... so. It requires a level of abstraction, but if you set up like, you know, I think there's enough Republicans that kind of understand, um, or, or enough people disaffected with how the system works, that can understand, hey, you know, the Republican gets in there, they seem to uh, not do what I want, uh, and I'm a Republican. The Democrat gets in there, they don't seem to do what I want. And so, you know, it goes back to George Carlin's uh, joke of, there's a big club and you ain't in it. There's enough things... To permeated throughout the culture that I think this would translate even though there is a level of abstraction within it. Um, I don't know. Give it a shot. See what happens. If it doesn't work, you know, you just drop it and move to something else. That's the great part about rhetoric. Um, Anyway, that kind of sums up my thoughts on the book, my ideas of rhetoric and stuff like that. It was uh, kind of all over the place, but it was a lot of fun. Definitely recommend this book. It's a short read. It's a quick read. Um, It's worth reading. Uh, Like I said, I will leave uh, the link to Vox's Summary of it, it's on BitChute, so uh, go over there to check that out. It's really good, and it's shorter than my video, so that's a plus. Um, Like, share, subscribe if you thought this was interesting. I really enjoyed uh, talking to you about this today, and uh, thank you, and have yourself a good day. Goodbye.